Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And without further ado, let me welcome my guest for today. He is a Crown Heights, a Crown Heights native as well as a director, and that's Phil Maylard. How are you doing, Phil? I am wonderful, Sam. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, so am I, and without further ado, you know, we will, we'll, we'll, actually, we usually start with just giving you, uh, you know, you giving us uh, your Brooklyn Roots history, but before we go down the, the Brooklyn Roots rabbit hole, uh, if you could just, you know, tell me how's everything going with, with uh, this coronavirus going on for you? How are you doing? I'm doing, you know, relatively okay. I mean, um, immediate family's okay, uh, unfortunately, in the last Three weeks, I've lost three family members to the virus. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I lost two in the last five days. So it's a little sobering because um, it's starting to hit close to home. Obviously, Brooklyn is uh, one of the places that has been affected by the virus more than uh, a lot of places in New York State or even in the country, if you look at it per capita. So we are definitely living on the front line here. Um, and it, uh, it's uh, sobering because I think the way of life that we used to know uh, won't come back the way we hope it will, you know, with the, once the virus leaves. So it'll be a new Brooklyn that we're looking at when we leave the house every day. That's a great point. You know, I, I think everybody is very antsy to, quote, unquote, get back to normal. But I think what everybody needs to to uh, deal with from their own psychological perspective is the fact that normal is going to be something different from, from here on out. But, I'm, I'm, again, you know, I'm sorry to hear uh, my condolences to you and your family. And, and I hope that, that you. you know, you guys can contain that. And I, hopefully everybody can get this contained uh, very, very shortly. So, and again, condolences. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, so, you know, we'd like to get a little distracted. You were on a Mets podcast with me, and, and of course, you know, with everything going on, it's nice to, to just talk a little baseball, even without baseball happening. But we're going to go down the uh, the Brooklyn rabbit hole today. So if you could give our audience a little background uh, as to where you grew up, what, what your, your Brooklyn background is, and... and you know, just the story of Phil Maylard. Sure. Well, um, I'm born and bred in Brooklyn. Uh, my my um, my roots are my grandmother, who uh, came here when she was uh, a kid. She's from Trinidad, Tobago, and uh, she came here uh, and went to uh, PS 161 as a kid back in uh, 1932. Uh, I have a picture of PS 161 for those of you who are wow. familiar with Crown Heights. Is is on Crown Street between New York and Nostrand Avenue, and I happen to live around the corner from 161. I actually have her graduation picture from 1932 at, at PS 161. Um, so she came here. Um, she had a aunt who used to work. Um, in a apartment building, which is on the corner of Union and New York, they were, uh, her and her husband used to, like, I guess, manage the building for the owner. 
And so they worked there, and my grandmother spent time there along with other relatives in and around Brooklyn. Um, she eventually met my grandfather, uh, and uh, she was young. I think they got married at 18. And uh, my mother was born in 1938. Uh, my mother's still with us today. She's 82. So she was born in Brooklyn, and they lived down on Quincy Street uh, in Bed-Stuy. And my grandfather was a uh, teacher and photographer. Uh, he taught chemistry and physics in high schools. As a matter of fact, he taught at Stuyvesant High School for many years. My grandmother worked for the Department of State. Um, and uh, my grandmother was a very light-skinned woman, so that helped her move around a little bit easier uh, in Brooklyn and, and, and getting that job at the Department of State. Um, and so she worked there for over 40-something years. And um, she was the first uh, African-American, if you will, or, or person of African descent to buy a house on the block which I live on, which is in New York between Crown and Carroll in 1955. She bought that house. And a little sub-note to that is that um, the woman who was the real estate uh, broker, she was a black woman who lived on St. John's place uh, between uh, New York and uh, Brooklyn. But she had a, a Caucasian woman working for her. And that Caucasian woman used to front as a buyer of homes for black people because the owners, uh, and it was mainly an Irish, Irish neighborhood at that time, would not sell to minorities. So she always posed as a buyer uh, to, to be the front person that allowed the minority to actually purchase the home. And that's how my grandmother got the home. Um, so it was, very, it was very divisive. Excuse me? Oh, I said that, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, this, and I can just speak for Crown Heights. Like I said, this was an Irish area. And if you know uh, the history of New York City, uh, New York City went through different, different, I guess if you say connotations or different levels of, of minorities or changing in the demographics, because at one point, you know, the Irish were the quote-unquote black folk of New York City, the Italians were, you know, the, each, each, each kind of representation of a, different, of a different country that came here were the low men on the totem pole. So um, when the Irish bought a lot of homes here, owned a lot of homes, things started changing, and that kind of goes to uh, what Sam's other project is, is the Brooklyn Dodgers, because the, the inception of Jackie Robinson in 1947 brought a lot of black people into Crown Heights just to see this person because this was obviously a sense of pride for people. So that changed Crown Heights, uh, or the change was coming in 1947. And by 1955, when my grandmother decided to purchase homes, you had a lot more people uh, that had immigrated here from the islands, especially in Brooklyn, that had that, at that point been ready to purchase homes uh, because of, of, of they've been a couple of generations at that point of employment. And, and uh, there was also at that time places like Levittown and Long Island were being built up. So you had a lot of uh, Caucasians leaving uh, Crown Heights and other parts of Brooklyn, moving out to the burbs, so to speak. And when 
you had a lot of black people coming in to see Jackie Robinson, the opportunities of the neighborhood presented themselves to them. And once the, once the Dodgers left, that changed everything. So the dynamics changed. Uh, the color barrier was broken in a couple of different ways in Crown Heights, one on the baseball field and the other one residentially. It's such a fascinating era, and like you said, though, I mean, there, there was there was speculation. There, there were uh, there was you know demographics being basically blocked out via the map, like where you were going to rent to to black people, where you weren't going to rent to black people. Uh, so the fact that that uh, this white woman was posing, uh, it it was a very important time because, and it, 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 it's. It's also just interesting because so many people, it, it, it really doesn't get talked about enough how much racism there still is in the northern, uh, in the northern states. You know, I mean, it, 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 they pit it as, as north versus south was primarily about slavery, but just because they were fighting for slavery doesn't mean that they wholeheartedly believed in equal rights. No, and as a matter of fact, Indiana, Indiana probably lynched more people than any state in the country, uh, and that's not in the South. Um, you know, historically, Crown Heights has been a, a, a has been an enclave for uh, Africans. Um, Brooklyn was broken up after the Civil War. Uh, after the Civil War was was won by the North. Generals were rewarded with land. And uh, I forgot the general, my mind is going, but the general who owned North Brooklyn was General Bedford, thusly the name Bedford Avenue, which is the longest residential thoroughfare in Brooklyn. And uh, General Bedford owned everything from, from basically, I think, uh, Empire Boulevard on North, and then I forgot the other general's name, uh, that's because I'm getting old, but he owned basically all of South Brooklyn. In between North and South Brooklyn was this area of Crown Heights, because Crown Heights, the highest elevation in New York City, is on the corner of Bedford Avenue and Eastern Parkway, which is 92 feet above sea level. Some people think it's Morningside Heights, but Morningside Heights is really, you know, is really a a a, a a thing that sticks up off of a flat ground where Crown Heights really mm-hmm. comes up right. as, as, you, as you're driving up from Flatbush Avenue, you're going toward the bridge, you're going up, ascending. So that's the high. So what happened was this area was not able to be farmed because it was rocky and hilly. And so between Bedford, Mr. Bedford and the other general, this, this thing just stayed here because nobody could do anything with it. Um, and there were, that was at that point, that a, a freed slave named Mr. Weeks came in and bought some land, I think it was from Mr. Bedford. And this is the only land that he was allowed to buy because they figured we can't do nothing with it, so y'all can have it. So at the time, they, they called it Crow Hill. And the reason why it was called right. Crow Hill because it looked like black folks on a, on a hill. It looked like crows. And mm. that's the reason why they called it Crow Hill. So it's so you funny. Know, it's that, interesting, though. Like, like, cause I've been, we, we, we did a Weeksville uh, podcast just the other day. Um, and right. and be, be, besides the fact that I'm trying to remember whether it's Lefferts as, as opposed to Bedford, whether, whether this family was Lefferts, it might've been according to the, uh, the Brooklyn Borough of Ron Swigert. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. 
Um, but but I was going to say that it had never it's never been brought up to me uh, about the crow hill element of it, you know, and uh, the the element of of uh, the, the black American. Correct. Um, yeah, and 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 so that is how they got a, a foothold in this area, which is so when you think about the the economy of it, because here is Crow Hill. Uh, so, so, so Weeksville was established, uh, and then just mile, uh, less than a mile from Weeksville, Weeksville was probably the, one of the most important social economic events in the history of this country, which is Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, all in the, in, the, uh, in the auspices of what we call Crown Heights. And the funny thing about that is growing up, you didn't even see the word Crown Heights on a map, never. Hmm. On a map of Brooklyn... I have physical map. I think I might still have some. We open it up, and, and they have Flatbush. You know, Randy McNally map. They have Flatbush. They'll have Bed-Stuy, East New York. Nothing that says Crown Heights. There was none. And that's, and that's probably uh, – That's I was going to say, too, that that's probably one of the reasons why – because, really, Ebbetsfield is technically still in the border of Crown Heights, but – you know, uh, uh, I, uh, the way I've been explained it is that from like from the, uh, the the borders of the original village of Flatbush, Ebbets Field is within the confines of the village. But it really is in Crown Heights. It really is. Crown, he- Crown Heights is really an eight block. When I was growing up, and I don't know, I'm not talking about actual actual border lines because it always it all has changed. As a matter of fact, Crown Heights has expanded. Because there are places that I knew of when I was going there were Bed-Stuy that are now called Crown Heights today. But that's because of real estate agency. You're trying to sell apartments and homes. So, you know, to change the name to Crown Heights is a little bit more applicable or a little bit more attractive. But that was all Crown Heights uh, 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 where Evans Field was as far as I knew. But, again, you got to remember it changed because Flapwish was on the map. Flapwish was 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 hooked up to the street Flatbush Avenue, so it was synonymous with that. Where Crown Heights was nondescript, and uh, and it wasn't until I would think, and 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 if you're doing this 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 thing about the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, I have a theory that the color barrier was broken when uh, at at Dodger Stadium by 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 Jackie Robinson, and when the Dodgers left, the color barrier was broken again. But when uh, Barclays Center was built that also broke the color barrier again in the opposite way of Brooklyn, and that made the changes that that are occurring again. So between the bracketing between right. two teams, one leaving and one entering, has changed the face and the economics of Brooklyn. Well, it, it really is uh, fascinating, especially considering that whole area uh, was always championed by Walter O'Malley to be where the Dodgers were going to event, you know, be if they had stayed in, in Brooklyn. Um, and just so many different reasons and, and uh, you know, Robert Moses and all, all that jazz as to why that didn't uh, happen. Um, so, so what was life growing up uh, in Brooklyn for you? Obviously it's, it's a bit past the era that we're focusing on. Um, but at the same time, it, it's still the, the echo of the era that we're talking about. It's so many different elements of, of real estate and, and social economics and, and uh, uh, you know, everything we're talking about. You were, you were born 
just after that era. So what was what was life grow, uh, growing up in Brooklyn for you? Well, I was born in 1962. Um, so uh, as we said in the Mets podcast, I was born the same year as the Mets were. Um, over here and growing up, there was still remnants of of what the what the area was like um, after you know after a lot of Caucasians left. You still had there was a actual Chinese laundry, a Chinese owned laundromat where it was the old style laundromat man where you you took your shirts there, your sheets, and they wrapped it up in brown paper with a with a you know tied it with rope, and you pick up this package of laundry that you did. There was um, there were a, a lot of it was a neighborhood. You know, you had your drug stores, you had your everything in a neighborhood that sustained the neighborhood was here. Um, because I live on a block where it's mostly residential homes, home ownership was a big difference compared to people that lived in apartment buildings. Because again, it's a sense of pride, and so uh, I lived on 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 a block and blocks where you had a lot of uh, people of West Indian descent that bought homes over here. But it was still it was still fine. I mean, it was still it was still a great place to grow up in. Um, never a sense of dread. Never a sense of I didn't sense any of the racist or prejudicial feelings that might have existed. Obviously, uh, when the Hasidic community came in, that was started some issues. As a matter of fact, my grandmother used to tell me stories about how when Hasidics moved into into, into Crown Heights, uh, the Irish, there were still, still some remnants here, actually picketed, had picket lines in some buildings, uh, not allowed, not wanting Hasidic uh, Jews to move in. So there were undercurrents of that, but as a kid, you don't really notice that stuff. You know, you, you, you play, you go out, you do your thing. Um, the neighborhood started changing slowly but surely uh, as we started getting to the 70s. One of the problems is because of the influx of, of West Indians over here, a lot of things did change. You didn't get the same support economically or socially from the city of New York. Um, some of the school systems started to deteriorate. You didn't get the same quality of food. So therefore, West Indian neighborhoods became little isolated pods of where they came from. So things that happened or things or businesses or lifestyles that had in the West Indies actually took root here. And that's why in a, in a lot of parts of at least central Brooklyn, not all the outskirts of Brooklyn, but central Brooklyn became a, a West Indian culture here. And that's what I was exposed to growing up. Obviously, and there's, uh, that, and there's a big parade uh, on, on Labor Day. The big play, right, which was which was which was probably the the largest or the second largest parade, and that actually started in Harlem, in the fifties. That that parade started in Harlem in the fifties, hmm. and the hmm. first year it came to New York, came to Brooklyn, was nineteen sixty eight. And as I, as I mentioned to you, I'm doing a documentary on a calypso singer named the Mighty Sparrow, who's like he's like the top of the food chain for our calypso singers, and he wrote a song. Uh, in 1968 called Mass in Brooklyn. And uh, he talks about, you know, even though he, he wow. misses home, he misses this, misses that, but, you know, Brooklyn is his home. And he talks about, you know, Jamaicans and Trinidadians and Haitians, but Brooklyn is his home. Well, 1968 was the first year they had uh, that on Eastern Parkway, which, by the way, just for, just for your history nuts, Eastern Parkway was the first six-lane highway ever built in the world was Eastern Parkway. 
Oh, that's pretty neat too. You know, I, I was just, um, I was really just thinking about it on the Brooklyn bridge today, you know, how, how the Brooklyn bridge when it first started was mainly a, a train and a ra- basically, you know, a rail and a pedestrian thoroughfare. Uh, and now it's, it's what you're talking about. It's basically a six lane highway. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm constantly, whenever I'm going through Brooklyn and whenever I'm going through New York, I'm always thinking about Robert Moses and what this place used to look like before he didn't care about anything that other than his highways. Um, but but going, going back to the demographics, you know, I, I live in Flatbush, and it's primarily Caribbean. Um, obviously, you know, there is documented with, uh, with uh, Southern black folks, they came up here because of uh, the Jim Crow laws, and, and obviously you know, like we were talking about, there was still racism up here, although it wasn't as embedded as it was in the South. But would you would you say that the majority of the, the black American population in Brooklyn are, are, is from the Caribbean? I think Central Brooklyn, I mean, it's a mixture of both. Uh, and, 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 and when you, when you look at, when you look at uh, records from Ellis Island, you can see the influx of change because obviously Ellis Island, like I said, if you Look at it, you know, you'll see Italians coming in, you see Irish coming in, you see Jewish coming in. And then when you see the records start to change, uh, that a lot of uh, people from the Caribbean came in. And, and one thing, like my, what my grandmother did was she worked for the Department of State, so she helped getting, uh, get a lot of family here. Uh, she was able to help get, process their papers and get them here. So what happened is that a lot of people, family members, uh, reached out to those that were still in the Caribbean and brought them here. And that was a mixture along with blacks from the South that have come up here. Um, a very good friend of mine, Sammy, and, and uh, his name was uh, Terry Perkins. His father, Frank Perkins, owned a, a bar downtown Brooklyn called Frank's Lounge. Frank's Lounge is on the corner of Fulton Street and South Elliott. And Frank's family came up from South Carolina. Uh, but Frank was good friends with Monty Irving and Hank Aaron and people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had this mixture of Southern blacks, but as far as businesses are concerned, um, the Caribbean uh, influx was very noticeable in Flatbush because they wanted to bring some of what they had home here. And that was a little bit no- more noticeable because for Southern blacks, they were already here. The United States was their home, and it was a different culture. So when you had that parade, that parade wouldn't have been established if it was just Southern blacks because there was no reason for that. Right. But, but, but for Caribbean people, Carnival is huge. Carnival is, is their, labor, you know, their Labor Day, so to speak, is Carnival in Trinidad and Carnival in all of the Caribbean nations had a Carnival. And so that's why that became here. And it was, like I said, one of the biggest parades in the United States, it was drawing over a million people. It, it, it blew away St. Patrick's Day. And when I was a kid, they used to have Memorial Day parades on Eastern Parkway. Uh, they were a lot more like, like parades you see in Manhattan. They were a lot more structured, you know, with the drums and the stuff that went by, and people had their little flags out and their little balloons and stuff like that. But the West Indian Day parade was different. Well, I wonder whether you know. I, you know, I always wondered like whether Brooklyn was guaranteed to to be on the way to the direction it was going. Uh, whether that's demographics or whether that's that's also uh, 
just urban deterioration because they stopped they stopped paying attention to this stuff. Uh, so my question is, what were, did did the Dodgers basically snowball what probably was going to be happening anyway? You know, because you look at the way other cities fell, um, it was very similar in, in fashion. But I, I really think that the Dodgers, wherever Brooklyn was going to go, I think. Uh, uh, the Dodgers just cemented whatever deterioration you could you could look towards in the seventies and eighties. I, I think so too. I, I think you know, but also the location of where Dodger Stadium was, where Evans Field was, in comparison to where stadiums existed in other cities, you were looking really in the center of Brooklyn, near Prospect Park, you know, uh, um, near near all the transportation uh, hubs, really, even back then, because of Empire Boulevard and Flatbush Avenue and Bedford Avenue being the longest uh, residential thoroughfare in Brooklyn, Nostrand Avenue, which is, uh, which is a block east away, is the longest uh, <clears throat> um, um, commercial thoroughfare in Brooklyn. So all the avenues, and then obviously you got close to Flatbush, Flatbush took you right into the bridges. So where Dodger Stadium was, was actually it was a perfect storm for um, integration, which is, you know, we, we get another conversation, integration and gentrification, uh, between the difference between mm-hmm. the two of those. But, that, but that, was, that, was, that was crucial because if it was harder to get to, if, this, if, this, if Dodger Stadium was in Coney Island, it wouldn't have happened. You know, the, the, the right. integration would not have happened and, that fast. Right. And what's so interesting from the Charlie Ebbets uh, perspective is that when he first put Ebbets Field there, it, it wasn't necessarily as built up as, as what we knew in 1955, 1956. You know, it, it, at that point, it, w- it was still some farmlands. There were still wooden shackles out, out that way. But he saw the direction the, uh, the trains were starting to go. He saw where everybody was moving. He, he saw that, the, you know, there was the immigrant population was coming in. And what's, what's also fascinating is that, you know, I, I don't think people, a lot of people my age can't necessarily comprehend the, the racism amongst white folks, if you will, you know, from, from, from an immigrant perspective, you know, like, and, and I think Pete Hamill did a great job in his book, A Drinking Life, talking about growing up in, as an Irish, uh, uh, a kid of Irish uh, descent. Um, you know, it used to be, what are you, Irish, what are you, Polish, what are you, Italian? It, it, they, they, nobody really breaks it down that way anymore. I, th- I, think, it's, I, think, the, I think the word racism is not always used properly. I think it's prejudice is the word because in right, this case right. of, of Brooklyn, prejudice, prejudice was transferable. It was transferable, like I mentioned. Italians were prejudiced against. Irish were prejudiced against, you know, Polish were prejudiced against. The only difference is that pretty much after a few generations of assimilation, those ethnicities can change their clothes, and it would be very difficult to tell them apart. But when black folks came in, I can't change my skin color. So, therefore, the, the label and the prejudice stuck and grew, and the other ones, other ethnicities that were prejudiced against before us actually were able to join in the band 
and saying, oh, yeah, it's them, <laughs> not me. Yeah. <laughs> you see them. And so right. and we well, had that's, no that's choice. What, that's the, the race uh, riots of the Civil War downtown where, you know, because the Irish were mad at, at the uh, black people for taking their jobs. It's just crazy. So the, right, 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 right. And, 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 but, but, you know, it's, it's again, it's, you know, they, they, they were prejudiced against by, by, by Italians because when the Irish came, they were accused of taking the jobs. You know, that's why, and, and, and that's why when you look at uh, what happened in the Bowery part of Manhattan, it's very similar to what happened in parts of Brooklyn. The experience is, is very similar when you look at the history of New York City. Right. So, um, but like I said, but the difference is an assimilation. Uh, where you become, you know, the fabric of a society, and then the other ones we can't assimilate, and and that was that was the problem. So therefore, you had, and th- and that's the other reason why I thought it was fascinating when Crown Heights has now become this place to be, because all my yeah. life I grew up on like, no one knew how. I never forget I was on, I was teaching at New York Film Academy, and I got on the train. I think this is. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, maybe just when the Barclays Center was being built or under construction, and I got on the train at Bowling Green, and the uh, train announcer said, number five train to Crown Heights Flatbush. And I was like, what did she say? <laughs> I couldn't believe she said the word Crown Heights. I was like, holy shit. She said Crown Heights. It freaked me out. It freaked me yeah. out because I, 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 I never heard that. And I remember... Walking around Bowling Green because I was teaching a summer class, I remember these two uh, two white white young ladies were walking behind me, and one of them said, "Yeah, I just moved to Crown Heights, and I wanted to stop and say, excuse me, <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> Not Brooklyn, you said Crown.' And I, I I was blown away by the change now of what Crown Heights was on the lips and tongues and mouths of people. And that well, is, for that one was, thing, was... uh, it's it's my favorite aesthetic neighborhood in Brooklyn for sure, uh, um, and especially I would say on the the northern side of Eastern Parkway, um, that that area and those those apartment buildings, the Victorian uh, nature of them, and and some of those brownstones, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And it was also the first place that I ever lived in Crown in Brooklyn was was Crown Heights, and that was on Eastern Parkway and Rogers Avenue. Right, and it's funny because I, there's a guy named Jeff and she- Jason Sheftel who uh, wrote an article in the Daily News. He had a column called "Best Places to Live," and uh, Jason's been gone now, I guess, five six years. Uh, if you look up the article, I'm in the article because I found him. There was a Jamaican restaurant called V's, which was on the corner of Montgomery and Notion Avenue. And I walk in there one day, and you have this white guy at the counter. And black people are very funny because uh, they're very they're very conservative, especially West Indians, believe it or not. And so he's sitting at this counter, and the place is full of black people, and everybody's like moved away from him, like 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 he had like he was a cop <laughs> or some shit like that. And I saw that, so I sat down next to him uh, because even despite all this, this idea of prejudice and racism and all that kind of stuff, I was never raised that way. I was never raised with that, you know, to look at people in that way, to generalize people that way, to look at somebody who's white and say, oh, they're going to dislike me because I was never raised that way. So I went up and started talking to him. He was doing this article on Crown Heights, and he was telling me, uh, we started talking, 
and he started telling me, well, you know, this changed when this happened, and you know, the the real estate went up and over here. And I said, no, nah. I said, no, nah, man, there was stuff always here. And I took him on a little walking tour, and there's a street here called President Street. Sam, you know what it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, President Street between between New York Avenue and Kingston Avenue are okay. big homes, big houses, and a lot of them were owned by black folks. There were doctors. There were people that worked for NASA. There were people, there were football players. There were, I mean, high-level professionals. Those are million-dollar homes where million dollars meant something. You know, I live in a yeah. house right now that is considered, you know, a million-dollar home on the real estate market. And I look at it, really? My grandmother paid $13,000 for this house in 1955. <laughs> Thirteen grand. You know what I mean? I mean, so, so, but those were million-dollar homes. A million dollars meant something. When I was a kid in the 60s, yeah. and 70s, it was a million-dollar home. So I said to Jason, I said, no, nah, man, that's not true. And um, there were jazz artists that grew up around the corner from me on Carroll Street, Noel Pointer, Ronnie Dyson. I mean, just a lot of famous people came from this area. Um, so it wasn't the way that Jason was describing it as this renaissance that all of a sudden came because of, of, of Oh man. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing, unfortunately, uh, Ronnie died in 1990, but I'm going to have to certainly, this is Ronald Ronnie Dyson, right? And he was also an actor. Right. Ronnie Dyson. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he died in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, no pointer was great. No pointer as well. Um, so, so that's that's a great segue, actually. That's where I wanted to go next. Was kind of going a little bit more uh, down the uh, the rabbit hole of what life was like for your your grandmother and mother growing up in, in Crown Heights and growing up in Brooklyn. Or, 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 or for your grandmother, for your grandmother immigrating there. Yeah, it was um, it was interesting because, like I said, she went she went to Bed Stuy first and. Um, she she knew of over here because, like I said, her aunt uh, her aunt worked for a family that owned a building here uh, in, uh, on on Union Street and New York Avenue. And so this was my earliest remembrances of it growing up was it was an area which was cool and still is really because everything was around the corner from you, where I particularly live. The subway station, the President Street train station, is a block and a half away. There was a pharmacy on the corner, the barbershop around the corner, the supermarket two, three blocks away, 71st Police Precinct uh, is two blocks away, you know, the fire department is seven blocks away. Everything was in your fingertips right where we lived. So for me, it was always a great place as a kid, uh, never really having to travel far outside of the sphere where I was. Uh, except when we went downtown Brooklyn, and downtown Brooklyn was always fun, you know, with the stores and stuff like that. So that was our little sphere here was Crown Heights, downtown Brooklyn. Um, we never really went toward – actually, we used to go toward Pitkin Avenue a little bit because they had a big shopping area, uh, for, you know, that a lot, of, a lot of minorities used to go to. But um, – Crown Heights, you know, it was it was a it was a great place. It just started turning in the eighties, uh, especially when you had a lot of uh former homeowners leave and the apartment buildings 
the people that demographics, the people that moved in some of the apartment buildings changed dramatically, um, and the crack epidemic epidemic hit, and then it became a place that was still kind of, was, was was getting kind of rough. It got kind of rough for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was quite different for me. But at that point, I was, you know, in, in high school and uh, and getting ready to head into college. Uh, but it was a quite different crowd heights than what she had uh, had come in to know. And, and talk about the, the baseball uh-huh. side of things. You know, uh, it, it was a great story you were telling on the Mets podcast about, about how much uh, Jackie Robinson meant to the entire family. Yeah, so my grandmother, um, all, all growing up, uh, and I was the only child, so we're the only child you are – dragged along, so to speak, around with the adults because, you know, what else are they going to do with you? So you got to hear the stories. And uh, she was, as far as I can ever remember, Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson. And so I, I used to tell the joke. I would ask my grandmother, you know, so who plays second base for the Dodgers? Jackie Robinson. Well, who played first base? Jackie Robinson. Well, who played third base? Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson played every position. He sold the hot dogs. He sold the beer. He drove the cab there. <laughs> she didn't know anything about the baseball aspect of it. She couldn't tell you anything that, except that Jackie Robinson hit the ball. He stole bases. He was the fastest guy in the world. He did everything. So he was – and, and, and I used to roll my eyes when I was a kid. Oh, God, Grandma, you know. I was a Met fan, and I was a little <laughs> bit, obviously. And I was a Met fan. I knew about batting averages. And, and I would say, well, Jackie Robinson was so good. How come, you know, Maury Willis got more stolen bases than him? You know, I would throw out statistics. But it wasn't until <laughs> later that I realized that it was, it was more a sense of pride for her. And so the sense of pride made me realize that, that – and this is a, a woman from Trinidad. So there was a lot of West Indian women – that probably didn't know much about batting averages or slugging percentages or, you know, fielding averages or knew a gold glove from, you know, from a, a, you know, a a rubber glove, but it was a sense of pride. And all that meant is Jackie Robinson. And just saying that meant something to people. And so the fact that he did that here, I think would naturally Mm -hmm. draw people to that. And if a couple people settled, in an area where he broke the color barrier, I think that they would want to kind of be near that universe. Uh, and then obviously I mean, had the Roy, Camp- Roy Campanellas and all those other players that came in behind Jackie. I think that was part of it. I really do. And uh, I think other than the other New York teams, I, I think, you know, and, and that was also, you know, the, the both smarts and deviousness in some fashion of Ranch Ricky was the fact that he, he kind of, understood that Brooklyn was the perfect place for this. When you look at the, the team, the places that had major league cities, uh, that, the, the cities that had major league teams, excuse me, at the time, Brooklyn it easily made the most sense. It did make the most sense um, uh, for a couple of reasons, because one, uh, there was, at, by, when Jackie came in, you did have a black community here, maybe not as much as, for, as home ownership, in the area, but the, but but the black community was here. Uh, two, Jackie Robinson, and I always compare Jackie Robinson to Larry Doby, and I think Larry Doby really gets the short end of the stick because 
Larry Doby was an 18 year old mm-hmm. kid in Cleveland. Jackie Robinson was a 27 year old man, and he was Diesel. I mean, this guy was in the army. This guy played football. This guy played basketball, yeah. baseball. He was no joke. He could probably have been a boxer if he wanted to. So, and he was married. He was Diesel, you know. So he was. There was not much that was going to phase this man. Um, and but 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 Branch knew that this was probably the best place for him, that even the obstacles that came here, that he would have been rallied around. You know, the difference of, of the black community in New York City compared to the black community in Cleveland is night and day. And that's not taking anything away from the middle of the country. It's just a fact that we're, just, like, just like coronavirus in New York, because everybody that comes to the United States starts here in, in New York City. They don't go to L.A. Right, first. right. They come here, and some people come here and settle. That's why this is the place of economic boom, financial, everything, because the majority of things come here. So the, uh, the thought-provoking, the, the people that were, had a different outlook on life uh, as, as far as the black community were here, the people that, that he could rally around, the people that, whose neighborhood he could move into were here, and that's what made sense. Have, have you been out to uh, Patterson, New Jersey? No, but I do know the uh, the um, the ball fields out in Patterson, correct? The ball field's still there. Uh, I, I think yeah. I heard one of the reasons why it's still standing is because it's the only national baseball landmark, the only national landmark in baseball, um, the the only thing protected. Uh, you know, and they still haven't figured out what to do it out there. And, and for the audience out there that doesn't know, uh, Larry Doby is from Patterson, New Jersey, which really is kind of a hidden gem of the city, I, I'll say. Yeah, because there, there, is a, there is a field out there, which is obviously overgrown now, overgrown, which was a Negro League uh, stadium. Negro yeah, League Hinchcliffe League. Stadium for our audience. Hinchcliffe right. Stadium to look it up. Right, right. And so it's uh, – so it's a fascinating subscript to uh, parts of Patterson, yeah. And, that, and the fact that the field, they haven't knocked it down, uh, you know, really reeks of needing to reestablish that, that place. Um, we were trying to, uh, a couple years ago, I was thinking about doing a piece on, uh, on uh, the Negro Leagues and some of the stadiums and places they were going to do. And we were talking to Curtis Granderson about being the host of this. Curtis is very, very gregarious, very great guy. It just never, it just never. Great guy. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. I still like to do stuff with Curtis, and um, and so uh, we were talking about that for a minute there. But yeah, it. Um, we we also have a friend of the show. Uh, we have a friend of the show, Phil S. Dixon, who is a Negro League historian. So I'll get you guys hooked up. Uh, I'm sure you guys could have a lot to talk about regarding that. I would love to. Uh, I that, would love that to adventure. There's another part of another part of that is uh, the story Jackie Robinson played in Montreal and some of the uh, the black baseball leagues in Montreal, which were established uh, even before Jackie. Right. And uh, they were they were big as as far as baseball teams are concerned as well. Yeah, and, and you know that's that uh, Montreal has a big part of that history. In in that uh, it it was it, it it was easier for Jackie, um, other than some of the other farm teams that the the Dodgers had in the system, which, which were sometimes in the deep south. 
Correct. And, 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 and I think, and I could be wrong, I'm, I'm just guessing that, you remember that uh, Dodger Stadium was the home to the New York Giants football team in the 20s. Um, and well, I, I think believe, Polo Grounds. Polo Grounds, right? Polo, was it Polo Grounds? I thought they yeah, played, yeah, I, think, I thought they played at Dodger Stadium. Well, the, the, well, what's crazy, and, you know, I, I'm going to have to have somebody on at some point. There is a book out there that I have yet to read, but it's about the, the other Brooklyn Dodgers, which are the Brooklyn football Dodgers. So for, for a little while there, uh, yeah, right. there, you know, there was, the Brooklyn, there was the Brooklyn football Dodgers, the New York football Giants, and the New York football Yankees. And the only one to survive uh, still has the, uh, the New York football Giants name. Right, and I and I think I think the famous Fritz Pollard played with the the book the Dodger football team, and I think Fritz Pollard is known as the first uh, was an African American in football who was a, oh, really? a player and a man and, and a coach, and the and the famous Fritz Pollard Award is named after Fritz Pollard. So there was a second incarnation that was one of Ricky, uh, Branch Ricky's downfalls with Walter O'Malley, which was the second incarnation of the Brooklyn Dodgers that just was completely a money pit. And um, right. it just, it's one of the things that got Branch Ricky kicked off the team eventually. Now, so like, like the, 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 the football, that was 48-49. So football in Brooklyn didn't make it out of the 40s. Right. Yeah. 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 That that that, that didn't that didn't work so much. Uh, Other than I, I think they've been trying, and and you know just a little bit of a tangent here. I, they've been trying football in some semi-pro football league out in um uh, uh what's it called? Key, it used to be Keyspan Park. It's now MCU Park for the uh, the Brooklyn Cyclones. I, they they're I, I forget what the football team's name is, but there has been some football out that way. Yeah, that's like, that football team's been in existence for quite some time, actually. Um, yeah, I played I play football. When I was at Brooklyn Tech, I played football uh, at Tech, and that team that team was around in the 70s. I can't remember the name of it now. But, yeah, there was some semi Brooklyn The Brooklyn Bolts? The Brooklyn Bolts. That's who's playing right now. I thought, I, I think we started – no, not the Brooklyn Bolts. It started with a K, I think. I gotta, I gotta dig around. My memory's going, but but there was a semi-pro team because I remember even as when I was playing high school as a kid, we would talk about you know the semi-pro team and we try out for it and stuff like that. But you know, that was that was in a different yeah. neighborhood. Uh, you know, I remember um, when I was in uh, high school, Brooklyn Tech. I had some friends of mine. We played. You know, I tried out for the baseball team. We used to play baseball. I played for the Bonnie Braves. Little League team over there by in in uh, parade grounds, and Bonnie Braves are famous for uh, uh, John Franco and some other players like that. And so when I was in Tech, we went to visit some friends of ours in uh, Bay Ridge and uh, white guys, and we played baseball with them. And never forget, friend and I, friend of mine and I, are walking to the subway, and uh, we start hearing, "Hey, you, you know what?" And next thing oh, we geez. know, we're, we're, yeah, we're being chased, man, by, it started like five or six guys, just the two of us. And uh, after like about four or five blocks, it was like 15 people chasing us. <laughs> um, and um, 
the only thing that eventually saved us was we got to, I forgot the street, and there was a police car there, and my father was a police officer. Uh, at that time, he was a sergeant uh, for housing, and I ran up to the cop and said, my father is so-and-so and so-and-so. I don't know if they knew who he was because he was a housing cop, the street cop, but the fact is I mentioned it, mm-hmm. and I think that's what saved us because otherwise they might have even ignored it. They might have even drove over uh, yeah. us there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Well, yeah. I'm glad you're all right, and we're we're able to talk to you right now. <laughs> you know, yeah, thank you. Story. Me too. And and Makes that's true of us. Yeah. And that's yeah. I mean, you know, that's Brooklyn. Uh, uh, it's it's so many different so many different areas that we we've talked about uh, throughout the podcast. We're getting to the tail end of the show, Phil. And um, I, I I thought you know why don't you go a little bit into your career? Tell tell some people about yourself because you've done some really interesting work over the years. <laughs> Well, thank you. Well, I went, I went to Brooklyn Tech, um, and I went to Brooklyn Tech. I was a electronics major. This is back, I'm going to date myself. This is when Brooklyn Tech had was built up as a, a as an industrial school when it first built up. So they still had things like a foundry in there. You know, you had you had machine shop class and wood shop class and stuff like that. And so I took electronics because I was never really good at working with my hands type of thing. It never really interests me. Um, and I went to Hofstra <laughs> University. I was going to be a veterinarian. I used to work at an animal hospital on uh, Animal Hospital in Brooklyn on the corner of Flatbush and Fillmore, which is out going to, out toward King's Plaza. Um, is near this famous place called the Floridian Diner, which is over there. I worked there for two and a half years. I was going to be a veterinarian, and um, and I got to school, and uh, I was a bio major. When I got to school, and uh, but then I just discovered bong hits, and started smoking a lot of weed, <laughs> and and science classes went out the window, because I was like, huh, what, what she just say, you know? And uh, I walked into a television studio. A friend, of, a friend of mine was in a television studio. His name was Rod Houston. That's my one of my best friends and business partners to this day. And uh, I was like, wow, this is really cool, man. Like, like you don't need any books in here. And the shit lights up and looks pretty. And <laughs> you can actually, actually, you know, use your creativeness in this uh, class. So I ended up as a television production major, communications major. And I graduated after in 85 with that and was looking for a job. I actually had a I looked for a job in radio because I did, had a radio show. I had a jazz show called The Land of Make-Believe at Hofstra, 88.7. Um, and I looked for jobs in radio and television, and, you know, and, and couldn't find a gig for like about a year. I started out as a production assistant on commercials, um, and uh, I, I started working quite a bit. I eventually got in as uh, started working as an electrician, on uh, on uh, commercial sets and movie sets, and uh, my Rod got a job at Tommy Boy Records. He was first the messenger and got a job at Tommy Boy. And uh, in '89, uh, he uh, said, "Hey, you know, I got to do this six thousand dollar music video, which is no money." And he asked if I wanted to do it, and I I said, "I guess so." And uh, that was the the forementioned as we were talking about Sam. Uh, too poetic. God made me funky, and that was my first uh, opportunity to direct something. I had never directed anything 
even in college, I mean, you know, we did little class projects, but never a film. Film was different than television. Two different things. The film students at Hofstra were geeky. They wore like, you know, they wore, they had, you know, had like, you know, earrings in their nose and they had, you know, used to wear, used to wear their keys on a chain in their pocket and wore uh, Converse <laughs> sneakers, you know, canvas Converse sneakers. And they were, you know, geeky art film students, you know, we, that was not my thing. So when I saw a film in college, I was not into that stuff. But all of a sudden now this opportunity <clears throat> came to do the direct rap videos. And that was actually a very crucial time because at that time was the first time where you had minority-owned production companies. We were part of a wave of minority-owned production companies, which is really the linchpin to creating uh, job opportunities and directing opportunities for a lot of African Americans, and uh, we started quite a bit of people, not just African Americans, but people in general, because you weren't getting opportunities to direct film, but now rap videos came in, and now you had an opportunity, so we started a production company, um, you know, as I said, the second video I did was De La Soul Buddy, and next thing you're off, and next thing you have an office, and next thing you, you're hiring people, you have, you know, million, do- million dollar insurance policies, and you're negotiating contracts, and giving people opportunities to direct and do other things. So it was a really fabulous time, and um, uh, we were really at the forefront of opening the doors to a lot of people. And so um, that continued for a little while, and uh, after after a while that kind of got old because the rap game, game changed and became more West Coast, and it was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of shooting cops and, nigga this and nigga that, and I really wasn't into that kind of stuff, so I veered off in that and um, started to work in Manhattan Center and uh, worked on multi-camera projects, multi-camera uh, events. I did that for a while, and uh, now currently uh, my my partner Rod and I have a company called Tomorrow Media, and we are now uh, more into the documentary storytelling thing. As a matter of fact, we are working on a coronavirus project right now that we hope to shoot next month. Uh, that'll be shot in uh, hopefully six or seven countries simultaneously through the use of cell phones. Oh, wow. wow. Something like that now. Yeah. So it's a, I, I've become a little bit more, more mature in the stuff I'm looking to do. <laughs> but um, you always got to evolve. It, 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 I call it Phoenix Rising because the, the bird rises out of the ashes. So you're always reinventing yourself with this business. Yeah, and and I uh, urge everybody to go onto YouTube. You can see a lot of his videos right there, then and there. Um, and, and you know, when you're talking about some of these artists that you you've uh, made videos for, like they, they're certainly not along the lines of of the gangster rap that you're talking about, which obviously has has some of its. Uh, uh, you know, good good artists uh, for sure. But De La Soul, I you know, I always think of as jazz hop along with a Tribe Called Quest. You know, in many ways, they they flow in many ways like jazz, if you will. Well, well, the Buddy video had everybody in it. I mean, that's the one thing about the video which is which resonates with people. I mean, there was Latifah in it. Tribe Called Quest was in it. There was a guy named Chris Lighty who Chris Lighty became a manager to a lot of big hip hop artists. He's in it. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of people in that. The Jungle Brothers are in that video. Uh, it was a lot of people. I'd never forget um, walking on the set, and we were in a place called Broadway Studios, and it was just not only packed with 
the artists, but, you know, the people that they brought with them. And I was totally intimidated. Tony was like, oh, my, oh, shit, what the hell is going on? You know, all these people <laughs> looking at you. And this is my second video, so I really wasn't seasoned enough to just go with the flow. And um, I just had to fall back on what somebody told me. They said, just don't let people don't, you don't know what you're doing. Don't let people know you don't know what you're doing. And that's what I tried to do. But um, <laughs> to this day, I still follow that advice. But, yeah, that was uh, – that was right. very, that was that was kind of some scary shit, man. I, even my father came to the set. That was even that made it oh, even wow. worse, you know, because like wow, you know, and so. But we worked with Noise by Nature, Queen Latifah, uh, Black Moon. Uh, we did one of my favorite videos was a group. We did something for the Lifers group out of Rahway State Penitentiary called Short Life of a Gangster. If people want to look at it, mm-hmm. it's on YouTube. Uh, and the making of that video is on YouTube, uh, Short Life of a Gangster, so you can see some behind-the-scenes stuff that we did there as well. Excellent. Well, everybody check it out. Uh, you know, and going to Buddy, that's, it's a great song and a great video, so I'm glad that you could uh, put your stamp on that. Uh, we're, we're at the tail end of the show, Phil. Uh, first of all, before I pass it on for your last word, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today and, and helping uh, to add uh, to this crazy, crazy heavy research that we got to do for this, uh, this Brooklyn thing. Actually, this is actually going to be very good. You know, the, the whole thing is, and as you go into your research, you know, realize that history is cyclical. Uh, that everything mm-hmm. in this place and looking at it from today's prism back at yesteryear gives you a little bit more sense of where its place is going to be and how things kind of actually got there at, at, at that time. Uh, moving forward, mm-hmm. whatever assistance you need from me, as far as that's concerned, is, is more than welcome. But anybody listening about Brooklyn, listen, Brooklyn, as, as it said on Welcome Back Carter, with the famous sign at the opening of the show, would be the fourth largest city in the United States if just Brooklyn was a city. So think about that moving forward and where you're living. And now you're having people who would normally have gone into the other fancy, fancy places of Manhattan. I hear these people now on television and, and, uh, and people that are, you know, a major kind of mucky must all about, talk about living in Brooklyn. Oh, I moved to Brooklyn. I moved to Brooklyn. So hold on to, to, hold on to your Brooklyn. It is your home. But, you know, let's keep it that way. <laughs> exactly. The great city of Brooklyn, as it should be called. Uh, Phil, yes. thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening today. We will catch you on uh, the Bedford and Sullivan podcast next time. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.